How ready are you, Abby? So ready. So ready. All right. Well, I'm so ready too. Hey, so welcome to Ed Technical, a podcast where we speak with leading researchers, practitioners, and educators about the cutting edge of AI and education. We're your hosts, Owen and Libby. Libby spends a lot of time thinking about the intersection of edtech, AI, and education at the Jacobs Foundation. Owen is in the middle of actually building an AI-driven chatbot called Rory, alongside very slowly completing his PhD on natural language processing and education. Hey, harsh. That was harsh, but fair. Uh, okay, so what is Ed Technical? Why are we doing this? Well, firstly, Owen, Ed Technical is a strictly no hot take zone. Whoa, 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 wait, wait. Who, who, who decided that? Me. No hot takes, especially not from you. Okay, well, I mean, I guess probably right, because our ultimate goal here is to get some time to get into the details and really maybe sometimes get in the weeds, uh, discuss with experts what's actually going on with cutting edge innovation in Ed Tech, right? Yeah, and importantly for us, we really want to make the connection between all the exciting innovation and the practical implications for teachers and learners. And that's partly because we're both former teachers ourselves. So that perspective is super important for us on this podcast. Libby, was that just a long-winded way of saying we're doing it for the kids? (laughs) We're always doing it for the kids, of course. All right. Well, now that everyone knows we're doing it for the kids, let's get started. Let's go. Uh, Who are we talking to today, Libby? Today, we're speaking to Daisy Christodoulou about AI in assessment. Daisy is Director of Education at No More Marking, an online assessment platform. And she's been working in assessment for a long time and has a huge amount of expertise in the space. I would summarize her position as seeing potential for AI in assessment generally, but healthy skepticism about how useful the latest wave of AI, so large language models, are for assessment and marking purposes. I guess also just for listeners, um, I'm sure you've heard of what a large language model is. We're talking about ChatGPT here. There's lots of other versions, obviously. Um, But these are, in a nutshell, models that have been trained on large corpora of text and have a really deep understanding of the statistical properties of language and now can produce some pretty impressive uh, examples of writing across a variety of contexts. We'll get into more detail across other episodes, but I just wanted to signpost that in case we weren't sure with the uh, jargon. You see lots of examples on the internet of essays that seem to be convincingly written all the way up to high school or maybe college. There's lots of reports about college uh, exams being plagiarized, college entry essays being written by ChatGPT. So there's just been a whole bunch of, I mean, quite honestly, panic about what this means for higher education or even high school education, what this means for assessment. So it seems really great to talk to someone who's done a bit more thinking about this in depth. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Daisy and the team at No More Marking have been actually experimenting with how large language models, so that's the AI that underpins um, ChatGPT, can be used for the assessment and marking of writing specifically. And let's just say that they don't think teachers should be packing away their red pens just yet. Ooh, exciting. All right, well, let's get started. Daisy, thanks so much for joining Owen and I for this inaugural episode of Ed Technical. We're really looking forward to speaking to you today. I think a really great starting point would be good to hear more about No More Marking. Yeah, absolutely. So No More Marking, we're a provider of online comparative judgment assessments. Comparative judgment is a different way of assessing open tasks like writing. So I think the way that we're all familiar with, either if we've been teachers or we've been students, we're very familiar with the approach of assessing writing where the teacher will read a student's piece of writing, maybe have a mark scheme or a rubric, and they'll mark it against the rubric. Comparative judgment is very different. 
with comparative judgment, instead of marking an essay against a rubric, you upload all your essays into our system and then they'll appear on screen a pair at a time. And you'll say to yourself, which is the better piece of writing? Which is the better essay? You'll make a series of decisions like that. And then your colleagues will join in and they'll also make a series of decisions like that. So you might be thinking like, what's the point of this? Why bother doing it like this? What's wrong with the mark scheme? And what's wrong with the mark scheme is that that traditional way of writing, assessing mm -hmm. writing that I talked about, is incredibly unreliable and time-consuming. So comparative judgment is a more reliable and more efficient way of assessing open tasks like writing. So we don't do it that you compare every essay of every single essay. You do a proportion of them and then you can build a model that will create the scale. So we're not making every single comparison. So for example, if you've got a class of 30 students, you'll need to do 300 judgments. We recommend distributing those judgments amongst different teachers because it's good to get different opinions. What we find is that you can make those decisions quite quickly. This is where the sort of psychological principle that underpins comparative judgment comes in, which is that as humans, we find comparative judgments much simpler than absolute judgments. Imagine someone walks into the room you're in at the moment and I say to you, how tall is that person? That's an absolute judgment. Imagine two people walk into the room you're in at the moment and I say to you, who's taller? The person on the left, the person on the right. That's a comparative judgment. And I can see from that very simple example that the comparative judgment is much simpler. So whatever kind of phenomenon you're talking about, whether it's children's writing, height, colour, pitch, temperature, humans are much better at comparative judgments and we can make them quite rapidly. So the strength of comparative judgment as an assessment technique is that it goes with the grain of the human mind. I mean, it seems like a bit of a no-brainer. Why hasn't it been more widely adopted as an assessment technique up to now? Comparative judgment algorithm was developed in the 1920s. I think the reason why you couldn't use it in practice, you know, in the 1920s is you have to, for it to work, you have to crunch through thousands of calculations. And actually, it's only really with the advent of cheap cloud computing that you can make this usable at scale. And how does a comparative judgment tie up with automated grading, machine learning based approaches? So comparative judgment is pretty different from automated. Comparative judgment is very much human based. When I talk about comparative judgment, it's humans doing the comparative judgment. The history of automated assessment of essays is basically getting a machine, you know, taking the human out of the loop and just trying to get a machine to do the assessing. So you can very easily build a, a, an automated kind of model that will make decisions on essays for you. And like most automated models, the great advantage it will have over humans is that those automated models will be consistent. And mm -hmm. humans are famously not consistent and don't agree with each other and don't agree with themselves. I think the issue with automated machine assessment is that it becomes easy to game. The famous example of these automated systems being gamed, typically when you dig into them and work out how are they making these decisions, you realise a lot of them in the end will be rewarding things on length. We've done a bit of work with ChatGPT getting it to mark writing. I think it's, it doesn't fall for some of the tricks that the older AI models fall for. But at our research so far, we don't think it's reliable enough to be used at a scale. And we think it does make a lot of errors, perhaps even more errors than humans make. Our feeling is that there still needs to be a human in the loop. Just before we move on to ChatGPT, it seems from what you were saying, there's something specific to human <laughs> psychology, how we process information that makes comparative judgments easier for us, whereas absolute judgment a lot of times are pretty simple to a computer. And so I guess, do you have any thoughts about whether this benefit, the efficiency benefit of comparative judgment would actually transfer to a model? So yeah, a couple of different points there, I think. So I guess one point, could we train a model? We've got a huge database of human comparative judgments that have created this scale of writing. 
could we use that to train an AI model so, so it's learning from those? And what's interesting actually is OpenAI have not published tons of information about how they train their GPT models, but the data they have published, it does appear that they have used human comparative mm -hmm. judgment to construct that scale. So again, right. that would reinforce my point that if you want to build a human, a scale of human judgment, the comparative judgment is your best bet. Yeah. So it does seem as though ChatGPT have been doing that. We have also then experimented a little bit, trying to use some of what we have to train ChatGPT to get it to make these judgments. And we started off trying to get it to make absolute judgments. So we gave it the mark scheme. We gave it some pieces to judge. We asked it to judge it. It didn't do a great job. We then thought, actually, why not get it to do some comparative judgment? Give it mm -hmm. a go at that. We asked it to do that. It was even worse. We then experimented with attempting to kind of train it, to give it some kind of an idea of, you know, what, what our humans had prejudged as quality. And that didn't seem to help either. So uh, I realise all this sounds very negative and like we're being very sceptical and there's a whole world out there saying, talk about how ChatGPT is going to transform the world. This is our experience with using it. I haven't yet seen anyone come along and provide any data that's opposite. I'd like to see more empirical research that isn't just, I plugged this into ChatGPT and here's what I got, or my students did this and here's what I saw. So the one of the things that frustrates me enormously at the minute is the number of people saying, oh, don't worry, you know, you'll easily be able to spot a ChatGPT essay. Here's how you can spot a ChatGPT essay. Oh, I spotted one for my kids the other day. I mean, I find this so frustrating. If you've spotted one ChatGPT essay, it's probably there's another 10 you haven't spotted, right? So I'd like to see some more actual empirical research and data on that rather than people saying, I'm a ChatGPT whisperer who can spot all this stuff. I think in some of your writing that I was looking through over the past weeks, you had said something that you think it's, which all seems intuitive, like it does better with like lower level tasks. If we're asking, you know, a 10 year old to like write a persuasive essay, you know, it would do, do a better job than if you're trying to get, you know, someone to write an A-level essay or something like that, or their college entry essay, or do you think that it would do better some of these technologies at assessment if the underlying task is actually maybe a little bit less complex or a lower level? Yeah, it's an interesting question. So I think we did a bit of work too on how good is its writing. We were running an assessment for human eight-year-olds and we included in the assessment I think eight or 10 pieces of writing that have been completed by ChatGPT and saw where they came out and they came out really near the top. So ChatGPT is, we were saying for eight-year-olds writing, it's very good. We haven't tried it with older students yet. My suspicion would be, as you just said, that, yeah, it's not going to be as good at 18-year-old undergraduate essays as it is at eight-year-old kind of persuasive writing. I still think it'd be pretty good. And the question is, how good does it need to be? And this is where it gets interesting. What's the human use of this? It needs to be very reliable and very good. If you're a student who just wants to get a passing grade, then it doesn't need to be perfect. Mm -hmm. By definition, if you just want to be getting the median score, it doesn't have to be tre tremendously good. So <clears throat> I think even if without it being perfect at writing an 18-year-old essay, it could still be enormously damagingly disruptive to schools and universities. I want to make clear here, we're talking about generative AI. And no more marking, we're big fans of AI, the traditional AI. Yeah. We use a lot of AI in our back office processes. And it's brilliant. And why is it brilliant? It's really reliable. And when I say it's reliable, if you give it the same piece of paper one day and the same piece of paper the next day, it will come up with the same result. Generative AI doesn't do that. So if you're trying to embed it in high stake systems, that's a big problem. Yeah, if you're trying to get it even to just mark quite simple questions, like not the essays I'm talking about, if you're just trying to get it to mark a sentence right or wrong, 
if it's going to say it's right one day and wrong the next, that's an enormous problem. So I'm a big fan of AI in general, but this is so different. And it's, as I say, those problems with consistency, I just think are going to really limit how mm. you can embed it into high stake systems without any human oversight. Yeah. What about not, non high I hear you 100%. What about non high stakes? If you're using it for kind of like low stakes formative assessment, imagine some writing task trying to like understand if the a 10 year old kind of more or less answered a, a factual question about let's say a nonfiction story or some, some other topic. Let's say if I had a human, the teacher grade every single response themselves, we'd get a 98% accuracy rate or, you know, something like that or something very, very high reliability. And then we say, well, if I give it to this model, it's 90%. So you got this 10% accurate. And like, so sure, it will kind of like let some incorrect answers pass and not, but then you're like, wait a minute, now I can like grade everything. What's been really, what's really interesting about this whole chat GPT thing is it, if you'd asked me before, if you'd asked me six months ago, you know, nine months ago, whenever it was before chat GPT came out, I am, and no more marking as a company, we are well aware of the flaws of human judgment. We know that humans get tired. We know that even when human excellent performance is really good, that it's very hard to replicate excellent human performance consistently at scale. The reason we love comparative judgment is aggregates human judgment and aggregation is one of the best way of dealing with the errors in human judgment. So we are more than aware of all the issues with human judgment and more than aware of all the benefits around the consistency and regularity of traditional algorithms and AI. So normally I'm the person out there going, look, let's introduce a bit of an algorithm. Let's introduce something like this. I'm making all the reasons you're just saying, like it maybe won't be as best as the best human, but it will produce it consistently and it will be instant and it will save us time. I can't say that about ChatGPT because mm. it makes so many errors that I actually think sometimes it makes more errors than humans. I think there's a tension in what you're saying that's not a contradiction, but I just want to pull it out. On yeah. one hand, I'm very sympathetic to you saying, hey, it's not reliable in these ways. But then you also told me that it can write essays that humans can't detect. Yeah, I suppose perhaps because it's been so oversold, you can then end up not giving it credit for what it is good at. And it is phenomenally good at natural language. and the problem is it makes so many mistakes. So the reason why it can write things that teachers find hard to spot is because human children make mistakes too. So you mm -hmm. can't just say, oh, it made a mistake. Therefore, it must be ChatGPT because obviously when humans write things, they will make mis mistakes too. And actually the great irony of that is the best way, I had a one teacher who said the best way to spot a ChatGPT essay is if it's used the possessive apostrophe correctly. Because no <laughs> child uses the possessive apostrophe correctly, right? So the way to many adults. It, yeah. Exactly. It's natural language, it's flawless, and it never makes a mistake. So that side of things is absolutely perfect. The issue is the content, right? Mm. The areas it's going to disrupt are areas where you don't have to be perfect to be valuable. And unfortunately, most of those mm. are not socially useful. So the two areas where I think it can immediately be really disruptive is cheating with student essays and writing scam emails. For a student essay, as long as you don't want to get the very top grade, you just want to get a median or above median one, it can do that. And a scam email, you don't mind if it makes mistakes. You don't mind if there's errors in it. You just Your job is to just create as many as possible and flood the market with them. The things where it'd be socially useful, it has to meet a high standard of accuracy, which it isn't capable of yet. Are there any tasks you think or uses that you like in an educational setting that you think it could be useful for? Like, for instance, I found it very useful to like summarize a text at a lower level of complexity. So if I looked at some highly technical document and I didn't need to 
actually understand it at the most technical level. At least for me, it does a pretty good job of like dumbing it down to my level. I do think that's the most valuable use I've seen of it. And I think for teachers, it could be really useful if you have a difficult passage and you want to simplify it. You can plug mm-hmm. it in and say, simplify this, simplify it even further, simplify another step. So it's good at that. I think I probably still, if it was me, I'd probably still want to be wary. If I didn't know what the technical document was to begin mm. with, I'd be really wary. Yeah. Like I'd be happy as yeah. a teacher, like putting yeah. in a passage that I knew what it meant and simplifying yeah. it for my mm-hmm. kids and it's saving me that grunt work because I'd be able to read the output and just, you know, be okay, check with it. I wouldn't be happy asking it to summarize something I didn't really know about. Yeah. Mm. Or maybe I would just, you know, if, again, wasn't that high stakes. I wouldn't want to totally depend on it. Yeah, it feels um, like that yeah. depth of knowing enough to be able to quality assure the output Ex- is exactly. really important. And I think there's a bigger issue here, which is to do with the kind of social context of AI. And we were thinking about this a lot when we started doing our first marking uh, trials, but it applies to lots of different fields. And it's this. When you are marking, when look at the current system of marking in high stakes assessments. It is absolutely not perfect. And I'm, not, I'm you know, the absolute first to tell you that. So suppose a student and a teacher and a parent disagree with the mark a student's got in a high stakes exam. What do they do? They complain to the exam board and there's a process. And there's a process whereby they can get a remark. And when there's a remark, you know, it will differ depending on the system. But generally speaking, what will happen is when you request a remark, that paper will be sent to a senior examiner, someone more senior, and that more senior person will review it. And what we all accept, all of us in the system, I'm not saying we're necessarily right to accept this, but how the system works is we say, well, that senior person is more senior, they've reviewed it, they've given it more time. And so that their second review of it, that's the one that should count. Mm. And people are generally kind of happy with that. And there's other ways you can do it as well, but you know, that's a kind of approach. What happens if the AI marks an essay and you disagree with that mark, do you then say, well, I'm going to mark it again with another AI and then the new AI gives it a different mark? How do you decide which one to take? How do you say, well, actually, that second one is the true authentic one? And this is the issue, I think, with a lot of AI is that a lot of the systems we have in society basically do require some kind of human sort of mm-hmm. standing to say yes <laughs> like this is what it is <laughs> and yeah. if you want to be really brutal about it the negative way of putting that is you need a human to sue or a human yeah. to blame someone to be so accountable when, yeah. yeah so when people say like would you be happy with your lawyer or your accountant or you know doctor using ai i absolutely would as long as at the end of the day they're going to put their name on it and say i am happy with this tax return or this medical diagnosis or this legal decision if they're happy to put their name on it, if they're using AI within their systems mm. and they're using AI to help, fine. As long as at the end of the day, I can blame them if it goes wrong. Uh, That's yeah. how human systems work. Human systems require that human accountability. And they also have this acceptance that uh, there's an element of trust that's in there too, both trust and accountability. And I don't see how any of that works if you just say, right, we replace everything with AI. Great. So what I hear you saying is that you two ex-English teachers think that we should use ChatGPT to simplify Shakespeare when we present it to students. Because <laughs> <laughs> you guys know what it means. And uh, then they can sue you if you get That's it right. That's okay. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. just want to make yeah. sure we're on the same page. That's what we get the blame for. We will get the blame <laughs> if the resources we churn out using ChatGPT have errors in. Yeah.
And what about the wider implication in terms of what we're assessing? I know that you recently mm. spoke at the House of Commons on this topic. Mm. I would love to hear more about what you think in terms of actually what we're assessing and what are the implications the advent of AI has for that. I think one of the most frustrating things I see is when people will say, if AI can complete our assessments, doesn't that just show our assessments are good enough? <laughs> well, I fundamentally disagree. I think it's a really lazy argument. So it is true that AI can now complete a lot of our written assessments very effectively. But that does not mean those written assessments lose all value. And if you just follow through the logic and implications of that, it should be obvious it's a pretty absurd argument. Like if mm -hmm. we're saying that you can never set a child an assessment that a computer can do, what kind of maths assessments would we ever set? You'd be assessing six-year-olds with postgraduate maths theorems. So obviously, you have to teach students using problems that computers can solve because students have to work through the basics before they can get to the advanced stuff. So that's a basic principle of cognitive psychology. None of us are capable of just short-circuiting, as I say, oh, the computer can do all of this, so I'll just jump to the thing the computer can't do. Well, it doesn't work like that. Otherwise, we'd all be math geniuses, wouldn't we? <laughs> or we'd all be brilliant at chess. <laughs> if you want to get good at something, you can't short-circuit those steps. You have to work through those steps. And chess, I mentioned that. It's a really good example. Actually, if you want to model for what should we be doing with this, chess is a really interesting example because 20, 25 years ago, the first chess computers started beating the best humans. Deep Blue beating Kasparov, I think, 98. And people said, oh, chess will be over as a game. No yeah. one will be interested in chess anymore because mm -hmm. computers have completed it. The opposite has happened. The absolute opposite has happened. Chess is booming. Chess is more popular than it's ever been. And chess is also grappling with the cheating issue, right? It's also grappling with that issue at both the amateur and the professional level of in a world where you do have an engine that can solve it, how do you make sure that people are not using those engines? I feel like chess is approaching that with a lot more seriousness and integrity. If someone gave you a big grant and you could just do speculative research on some kind of technical mm. education related question, what would that question be for you? So I think the thing we are quite interested in at the moment at No More Marking, which I've always been interested in, is what I call the links between the small steps and the big goal. So education, all our goals are big goals like critical thinking, problem solving, writing complex texts, mathematical problem solving. What I'm really interested in is how do you break those goals down into the small steps? And my feeling is the relationship between the small steps that you teach in class and the end goal are probabilistic, not deterministic. So for example, that can be quite confusing because people think, well, if you've taught the kids all of this stuff, shouldn't they therefore mm. all and then get the same score on the end goal? And I think it's a little bit more complex than that. It's not just a straight read through. So all the things I'm interested in are how do we break down these complex end goals into small steps? And the allied problem I'm interested in that is all the goals we're interested in education are long-term and yet so many of our assessments are short-term. So what I'm really interested in, this is an expensive and difficult thing to do, is following up over long periods of time, like years and even decades, you know, like what kind of assessments, what kind of teaching methods and assessments in your teenage years that later on mean you hold on to stuff at a later point. And obviously it's very hard because there's lots of confounding factors, but those things around long-term memory are things I'm very interested in. I think I'm very interested in how generative AI can be used in education. Okay. I do find it fascinating. I hope you've realised that here. I'm not someone yeah. who's writing it off from a knee-jerk position. <laughs> it's philosophically yeah. extremely interesting. So we will keep researching this. I will keep being interested in it. Awesome. Great. Thanks, you. That was a really fun conversation. Yeah. Yeah, great. No, I really enjoyed it too. 
I loved hearing from Daisy on this. I think the work they're doing has such immediate relevance for teachers and students who are using ChatGPT now. Uh, I think Daisy's drawing attention to the errors and consistency issues that they've been seeing um, was really useful to hear about. Uh, there's actually, there's so much that we touched on in the interview that I would have loved to have done more of a deep dive on, but we just didn't have time. And I think that's probably going to be a common issue for us in a technical. I would have loved to have um, gone deep on some of the comments Daisy was making about issues with plagiarism and how this should or shouldn't change how we think about um, assessment and how we assess. Um, what did you think, Owen? Yeah, Libby, uh, I totally agree. I think that was a missed opportunity. Hopefully we touched on it enough, but I think that's a really interesting area that we should explore more. I think there's huge implications there. I think uh, something else that I'd add would be, while I don't disagree with Daisy on this, I think that the limitations of using LMs to assess student work really depend on the specific use case. And I think there are maybe three key variables that people would want to think about. One is the complexity of the task or the age of the student, how sophisticated a task you're trying to assess. Another one is how you're using the model. Are you using this off the shelf and just dumping this into ChatGPT more or less? Or are you, do you have a sophisticated NLP engineer who can help you do a more nuanced version of the model? Or three, and three, the level of iterator reliability or dependability you need. Um, does it need to be perfect? You know, humans aren't perfect, so humans maybe agree with each other 90% of the time. Is that our benchmark? Or maybe if it's kind of lower stake stuff, can we have a slightly lower uh, agreement level? And so I think that, you know, I guess just one point is some research I'm working on right now. Um, it's, it's about formative assessment, so it's much lower stakes. It's a much simpler task. It is students answering open-ended reading comprehension uh, at a reading level of approximately maybe a nine or 10 year old. So they're fairly simple tasks. And me and my collaborators do have a bit more technical expertise. So we're kind of doing fine tuning or just tweaking these models in specific ways. And we got pretty good results. You know, they're not as good as expert uh, human raters, but they're pretty close. And so I think that that's just a, a wrinkle that uh, is important to keep in mind when thinking about whether these work or not. For me, I think that's the distinction here and why Daisy's perspective is so valuable is that lots of people using ChatGPT in schools or at home at the moment don't have that level of technical expertise that you and your collaborators have and they are using it off the shelf and so really understanding what some of the limitations might be um, when it comes to the products that people have access to day to day I think is super important. I also thought Daisy's point about needing an accountable party was really interesting. So Daisy was saying that if something goes wrong or um, the results are inaccurate or there's an issue and someone wants to um, dispute the results, that it needs to be clear who they can uh, go to for resolving that issue and that the introduction of AI creates some blurry lines in terms of accountability there. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of the uh, socio-technical problem, like Parks Lawns, like you know, how do how does society, how do people interact with the technology? Um, and I, I think that you know, just working a bit with chatbots and thinking about how humans interact with these virtual agents. What's also really interesting about motivation, you know, do Daisy's case is a bit of a negative case, but how does having a human involved or knowing a human's involved or not? impact how students would interact with an educational technology, which I think is a whole other pretty wild space. 
Uh, hopefully we can discuss some more in the future. really hope we get to reuse the phrase socio-technical in future episodes. I'm very happy that we made it into episode one. <laughs> I'll try to do it. I'll do it every time. Uh, just need to sneak it in there. Um, who are we talking to next week? Next week, we are speaking to Dora Dembski, who is an assistant professor at Stanford. And Dora has been focusing on large language models in education for a while before they became trendy. And we're going to have a chance to dig in deep with her next week about some of the research she's been doing, looking at the potential for large language models to support teachers, including through coaching and providing feedback. Exciting. Looking forward to it. Yeah, I can't wait. So that's it for today, our first episode. Thanks so much for listening. This has been Ed Technical. All right. Bye, guys. <laughs>